0: In the beginning. Genesis 1-1 takes us back to the start of everything. The world, the story of our universe, and time itself all flow out of those three words. But the kicker is, of course, the fourth word offered without preamble or exposition, God. The biblical text takes the creator himself as a foundational assumption. And just as God bathes the newly created world in the glow of light, So, God's word moves throughout its books, revealing the nature and glory of God in various times and various ways. Coming to the knowledge of who God is and what he has done is a process that faithful followers have been pursuing from the dawn of creation. Prophets, priests, and kings grasped at the revelation of the all knowing, all powerful Yahweh. They perceived shadows, glimpses of the majesty of holiness, the full picture yet concealed. But it would be the Apostle John, thousands of years later, who picked back up with those three starting words and used them to reveal what may be the most profound truth of existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is Jesus Christ? How could it be that a man who walked the dusty streets of the earth was in actuality God incarnate? What does the nature of Jesus reveal about the nature of God, and why does it matter to us today? Welcome to Who Let the Dogma Out, where doctrine has dominion over all of life. I'm one of your co-hosts, Titus Anderson, joined today by uh, a gentleman and a scholar, uh, Jack Wilkie and Daniel Mayfield. I'll let you guys fight over uh,
1: which is which, but uh, good to see you guys again. Hope everybody's doing well. Good to be back. Welcome back from uh, claim, Africa, Daniel.
2: Yes, I am. I'm not sure if I can claim either one of those, but uh, <laughs> you know, I. But no, I, I did. I just got back from Africa the other day, so I'm still trying to get onto a routine and a schedule. My body still thinks I'm in Africa, so I'm waking up way too early every day, going to bed way too early. But uh, that's the price you pay. It was a great time. We uh, are you are you fellas drinking any coffee this morning? I was thinking last season that was kind of what we did. We just talked about coffee for a little bit. Yeah, are We're you talking.
1: even a coffee guy, Titus? I can. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, yeah no, I, I love coffee. So okay, we. Yeah. I mean, you can't at, be on it if you're not. So that's. Well, so at home. We are the you know grind your own beans family, okay. you know. Yes. So so that's home. you know, Drip, grind your own beans family. At work, it's the Keurig, oh.
1: right? And so we're done. You, we know we uh, we established how we feel about that. I believe. Sorry to we, Jacob on that one, but uh, the
2: Keurig yeah. is little trash pods that ex- <laughs> that little excrete trash. garbage brown water
0: well you know you you get that feeling of you know the biblical idea of exile or you know captivity when you're you know you're trapped in a work environment that only has that as the available coffee source so uh, you know when
2: when when we were in africa i was told that that may be some of the options because uh, some of the places we were staying that was all they might have and yet i had beans freshly uh, roasted beans from a plurality of locations through malawi we were in east southern africa and uh i had beans from all over malawi that were grown right there we ground them fresh every day and uh just basically started the day with a french press full of coffee i drank like two french presses a
1: day so it was awesome that sounds great nice that sounds great it was amazing Alright, so the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the the essences of Christ is I, I'm glad you brought this one up. Uh this is one as as you saw with Titus uh reading it is kind of an idea he brought to us. And it's it's so underrated. I mean we say all the time, Jesus died for you, but he also lived for you. And like mm-hmm. it wasn't that he just had to be here for a certain set amount of time, like, alright, check that box, now I can go to the cross and and there's a reason he didn't like port down here as a fully grown human being, jump on the cross, die, come out of the grave, and then go right back up. There's a lot going on here, and so I, this is a great topic um, and and a great intro there. Why don't you get us into? I, I don't know. Some people might look at this and be like, "Why does this matter that much?"
0: Sure. Yeah. So you know, as I as I thought about this season and stuff, I wanted to address. I think that part of the reason this came to me is some of the things we talked about in the last episode. Um, th- this idea that because of theological minimalism, which because of that, a lot of our people in our churches can basically look at some of these ideas, these theological concepts, and one maybe have no familiarity w- with why it matters, or two have really deep misunderstandings about what it really means, uh, and when you start asking good answers you you mentioned you know well why does Jesus living matter a lot of times we come in with certain assumptions we go well Jesus uh he you had to have a sinless person die to forgive our sins well the question would then be so why didn't God command Mary and Joseph to make a little cross erected outside of the you know the the manger there and, and just crucify Jesus when he was a baby I mean he was obviously not a sinner in that stance so why would that not work well that adds a complication to our theology why did he have to die in the way that he did uh and that's just kind of the beginning of you know how we look at this and how we can practice christianity that goes beyond well the important thing is that jesus died for you that you're baptized into him and now you're welcome to sit on a pew for 50 years and never go deeper than that these questions of the nature of god uh, are important they're the lifeblood of of, you know, our spirit, I want to say, as we have that connection with God. And so what do you guys think? You know, can we practice Christianity um, in a way pleasing to God without really touching the nature of God and who God is? No, it's it's impossible. And
2: the, you know, you're striking at, again, this main concept of theological minimalism and what it's done to us as a church and as Christians individually is that you can have Christians who've been Christians for 20 years, 30 years, and they do not fully understand that Jesus was totally God. I've had I've had conversations with Christians who grew up in the church. They were in there for a long time. And when you say something like, hey, Jesus created the universe. He was the one who did it. He was the word by which the universe came into being. And they're like, what? I didn't know that and and we carry with us for so long ideas of Jesus that are similar to the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or a Muslim not respecting the idea and the central truth that Jesus is totally and fully and completely God and no you cannot live a faithful Christian life if you do not hold Jesus into that position and, I, and I'll say right at the start you know one of the symptoms I think that comes out of this is people that will say something like hey you can't talk directly to jesus you only talk to god or you can't sing to jesus you can't praise jesus this is a this is because there's a complete misunderstanding of the deity of jesus he's god and of course you can sing to him of course you can talk to him and not only that but you ought to and so um yeah that's that's my take just to get us going jack I think what do you think
1: with that uh, the son term really throws us off, right? I mean and some people think that he really is like The son of God, you know the descendant the the offspring of God and obviously that is one of the first heresies, right? Um, but Even in the fact that he took on flesh, you know You've got the father and so there's that separation that he's still out there and, and the spirit has come to us And so there's like, you know God and then kind of God and it's it's not that way in fact the fact that he took on flesh that, that rather, we've, we got it all backwards, I think, and that goes to the point that you kind of introduced here of, like, that is, wow, this is great, powerful, all that stuff that he took on flesh, it's, well, as as the member of the God who took on flesh and became like us, it, he almost, we, we lower him to our level, and man, that's such a mistake, that reads the entire thing backwards, and you go to Philippians 2, and, and Hebrews, and, and these verses about emptying himself, and, and, voluntarily choosing this, and even what he told Pilate, like, you're not killing me, I'm here because I present, I'm presenting myself to you, I'm laying my life down, and it's, again, it's just such a misunderstanding of him, and when we misunderstand that, we misunderstand God as a whole, the three parts, uh, the three persons, we misunderstand the authority structure, we misunderstand the mission, we misunderstand creation, I mean, there's a lot that flows from it, I think,
0: and I, I think you guys are, are, are hitting the nail on the head. One thing that I've noted, especially as as members of the Church of Christ, members of churches of Christ, um, we are we are very distinct. Our, our teachings, the, the way that we approach things, is very distinct from a lot of people in the denominational world and we spend a lot of time focusing on for instance well here here's how we stand apart from the baptists here's how we stand apart from the methodists and the the jehovah's witness and we often you know throw these names out there And good and well, I think, as we talked about last week, we need to make distinctives known. We need to let people know what we're about. But because of that, sometimes we bury the lead on what are the distinctives of Christianity? You know, what what makes Christianity different? You know, well, Christianity makes me a better person. Christianity teaches me to be a moral person. Christianity uh, is just kind of the culture of the moment, whatever people think in their area. And we forget these two pillars, really, of Christian theology, and because they are difficult, because they are mysterious in a way, uh, I think that we get away from that. But, but what I'm referencing when I say the two pillars are uh, the triunity of God—that we serve a God that is three in one, and one—and the dual nature of Jesus. Th- those are things that you only will find in true Christianity, and outside of them, no true Christianity exists. And that's why, again, I would make the distinction between saying, well, you know, a Baptist, a Methodist, and a Jehovah's Witness are all sitting at the table, what can you say about it? I would say, I have disagreements with all of them, and yet the Jehovah's Witness who denies the deity of Christ, that puts them in a different basket than these other people over here. We're talking about a fundamentally different religion uh if we're talking about a religion where Jesus is not God. And I think right. again that that pillar um it does doesn't invalidate all the other things that we talk about, but it has to be there for the foundation to be uh holding as it should.
2: So if our approach to the Christian faith is to totally and completely and always be distinct in everything that we do, then we're going to throw out in the process, the central elements of the Christian faith. And then all we're left with is sort of these tangential outer, maybe a couple doctrinal points. And you're left with again, just this shell rather than the essence out of which everything that's outside of it comes into existence. So, yeah, you're, you're not standing on the Christian faith if you're not familiar with the triunity of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the dual nature of Jesus. He is both God and he is both man, and he's completely those two things. And we can, and I think we should admit that we share this in common with a number of other people who would profess the Christian faith. We can get into disagreements and differences out there at a certain point, but there has to be an understanding that we do share this with others, and we ought to.
1: Yeah. So I've been totally. writing on uh, Mark for a. I, I did a sermon series on it, and then I'm doing a, a Bible study guide on it for Focus Press. And Mark eight through ten I, it is is brilliant. I just I love this section. And at the start, it starts with Jesus healing the blind man in three stages. You know of you know he can kind of he can't see, and then he can see blurry, and then he can see clearly. And at the end, he just heals a blind man straight off. Now you can see. And in the midst of that, right next to the blurry vision and then partial and then full vision is Jesus asking, who do people say that I am? And, oh, well, you're one of the prophets. You're John the Baptist. You're Elijah, whatever. And who do you say that I am? And, and you can tell those people are blind. They don't get it. They don't see Jesus for who he is. And Peter says, you're the Christ. And you think, okay, Peter's not blind. Peter can see. Peter's vision was blurry. He had partial vision because then Jesus says, uh, you know, or I'm gonna go die, and Peter says, No, you're not, no, no, we're not, gonna let, we're not gonna let that happen. And that's where get behind me, Satan, and all that comes in. But over the next few chapters, it keeps going back to that of Jesus saying, Here's who I am, and that's what it means. I'm gonna die, I'm gonna be raised again, and everything that comes along with who I am, and the transfiguration, Peter, oh hey, Peter, you know, Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, all three of them, let's build a tabernacle. And God's the Father's voice, you know, booms over and is like, Hey, Peter. Settle down, man. Listen to him. And then the rich young ruler comes up and says, good teacher. And that's where Jesus says, what do you What do you mean good? You sure about that? You know, is that your final answer kind of thing? Because only God is good. And you see from the guy's answer that he walks away that he doesn't really believe that Jesus is God. And, and so these are the practical implications. What Peter was doing there, denying cross-bearing. What the rich young ruler was doing is denying listening to Jesus because... It's kind of that, that classic thing. If he's just a good teacher, you can kind of pick and choose. If right. if he's not, if it's God in in the flesh, and he went to the cross, and he says, you've got to bear your cross too, then you've got to do the same. And, and all of the things that he teaches and everything that flows from that, and so when you're saying that these are the two pillars, absolutely. And that's exactly what, what Mark is doing with that section there. That's exactly what so much of the New Testament is saying is, you have to believe this or get out you 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 take it all or take none of it because it doesn't work without it
2: and you can you can make the statement you can say all the right things in this regard so you can say yeah i believe jesus is the son of god and you we would say this is an important confession but if you don't understand the implications behind that and how it works out and you don't really live as though he is the son of God and understanding this means he is deity. He is the ultimate authority. Then you're going to make the same kind of mistake as you bring out that Peter did where in Matthew 16, he's the first one to make this plain confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God and Jesus praised him for it. He said, blessed are you Simon, son of Jonah. You did not get this revelation from flesh and blood, but from heaven. And, he said, you know, on on this rock, I'm going to build my church. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And immediately after this, Jesus goes on to say, here's what I'm going to do. Now that you recognize I'm son of God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Calvary and I'm going to die. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, we will never let this happen. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan, because Peter made the right statement, but not knowing What the implication of that is, Jesus gets to call all the shots, then you walk away thinking you have some level of authority in how this Christianity plays out. How many people today, not really understanding or believing in the deity of Jesus, are sort of letting him be their homeboy or something less than this, where he's just a good buddy that they hang with, but as soon as they have a disagreement, they part ways. He is God, and that's everything.
0: (laughs) Exactly. You're exactly right. It, it 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 sets the expectations on the relationship, depending on how you understand him. And, and then it leaves open the door for once we understand that who he is in that relationship, that he then calls us friends, that he calls us brothers, that right. then takes on its true meaning under the understanding of everything else. And so I, I think you hit the nail on the head That's there. That was- it that that was perfect. Um, so as we talk about this, I I do want to bring up this kind of at the forefront and say there's a reason why it's easier to talk about baptism, for instance, than the nature of Jesus. These the things that we're going to talk about in this episode are just inherently mysterious. They are not fully comprehensible to the human mind. And that really discourages some people. I've I've noted, and I don't hold a grudge against anyone for this. When I've taught on the Trinity and these type of things, I've had people come to me after Bible classes and say, I'm discouraged. I don't know that I can ever fully grasp this. I, I don't know that I can fully understand this. And to that, I say two, two sides of the coin are, on one hand, Good. You don't want to serve a God that you can fully comprehend. You don't want God to be easy to read, totally within the grasp of the human imagination, because then he becomes a God that anyone could have come up with. Anybody could fabricate that God. And so on one hand, good. But on the other hand, God has chosen to reveal himself to us this way. Uh, He's chosen to reveal Jesus to us in this way, which we know undoubtedly is the best way to do it. It's the way that God has done it. It's who he is. And so while it's never fully comprehensible, it is comprehensible. (laughs) The, the, The wisdom of it and the glory of it, you can touch the hem of it. You can grab onto that and understand it and your appreciation for God is going to grow because of it. And again, as we talk about terms like Trinity uh, or, or, or hypostatic union, you know, heaven forbid we get into to crazy words like that, but at the same time, you'll hear this thing of, well, that, I don't find that in my Bible. I don't see the word Trinity in my Bible. But as we know, we're big on ne- necessary inferences. And the things that we want to talk about in this episode, and as we go on, we're going to get more and more into the Scriptures. Um, these are necessary inferences based on what the Bible says. We're we're having to take the truth that it puts forward, and sometimes it's going to look like, well, we know it says A is true, and we know that it says B is true about the nature of Jesus. They must both be true. Now, how do we talk about that in a way that rings true to both of those statements without (laughs) treading into the waters of heresy? Um, And that's something, again, that I I don't think that our generation in the church is necessarily trained to do well because of, again, theological minimalism, a shallow uh, pool of knowledge, and so anything that we can do to move in the right direction and help people get a little bit of that, even if we have to acknowledge that what we're saying is baby talk. As we talk about this, we, we aren't truly describing the nature of God as He is in His infinite majesty, because if we did you would see all three of our heads explode on camera. Mm-hmm. So it's baby talking so far as he is infinitely above us, and yet he's on the level, he condescends to the level that we can speak about him in a way that's true. This truly is how God is, even if it's on a finite understanding level. So, so my
1: f- five-year-old, she was four at the time, it was, it was months ago, she uh, was going to bed and I'm trying to get her to go to sleep and, and you, you need to go to bed, go lay down or whatever. And she says, "Well, if Jesus is God, why does he pray to God?" And (laughs) it's one of those like, "Okay, are you stalling? Because that's a really good way to stall, kid." Okay, good good question. Do you have any more questions? Right, right. (laughs) But it is that where it's like out of the mouth of babes. You know, this is a four-year-old that is hit with this, this how does this work kind of thing. And like you're saying, we just we kind of leave it alone, and then people just aren't sure what to do with it, so they kind of make we make our own boxes and just put it into the one that makes the most sense to us where he's given us some of these things and he's explained why he took on flesh and and the dynamic of it now there's certainly as you're saying there's parts of it we're just not going to understand here because as humans and only humans we don't understand the whole 200 man thing uh you know that one fully human fully god like how can you be two things at once you're you're this or you're that and and so it's very hard to get our minds around. But if we just kind of, again, do that, well, it's it's hard, so we'll just leave it to somebody else. You're going to end up with, again, people coming up with their own answers for these things, which ends up with really bad things. And so you've got the first Adam and the second Adam thing. You've got the Colossians 1, which you brought up earlier, Jesus as creator, uh, and everything that he does. And one of the things the New Testament, or really the whole Bible does for us, is depict... The Father doing certain things, the Son doing certain things, the Spirit doing certain things. And that's not to say there's no overlap or they can't each do some of those things, but they've taken these roles on themselves, and it's important that we understand them. And obviously the most directly impactful one is one member of the Godhead saying, I'll go become a human for them and and walk with them and, and have flesh and blood like them and feel pain like them and die like them. And... It matters. It, it it does, and so we've we've done kind of why the deity of Jesus matters, and again Peter and the confession and all that, the humanity of Jesus. This side of it, the fact that he had skin, muscles, blood, a brain, heart, like you and I do. Uh, the fact that he had a mom and dad here on earth. The fact that he ate food. The fact that he anything that that he did that we do, and that Hebrews talks about tempted in all ways that we are. That. Uh, again, it, it, there's a reason he didn't port down here for 30 minutes and jump on the cross. He went through all that. And so why does it matter? What What is the impact of this, the the importance of it? Let's get into that side of it. Well, before we do, uh, Titus a little
2: bit ago mentioned the hypostatic union, which is a good segue. Titus, is that a uh, a yoga position? Because if it <laughs> is, we already had an episode about that oh, and not about that. That's new age and that's out. But uh, but in, it, <laughs> in all serious, I had to, because hypostatic, it just sounds like it. It sounds, I, it, like, it a, sounds
1: like a 2007 band. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, oh, you're going to go to the festival? We're going to catch the hypostatic mm-hmm. union? And, yeah, hypostatic. I think they...
2: Chalcedonian, the Chalcedonian Creed kind of sounds like maybe like a really ritzy HOA. Like if, <laughs> if you join, like you go to a, a big ritzy neighborhood and you've got to sign the Chalcedonian Creed how you're going to mow your lawn. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we'll get into that. Hypostatic union, Jack, you know, Jack's bringing in the dual nature of Jesus, fully god, fully man. Uh this is everything to us. This man component, which by the way, you have you have to have the god component for your worship to be in the right place and for him to be, you know, raised to the highest position. I did a, a lesson recently that was how a high view of King Jesus creates purity and spine. If you don't see him in this high exalted state like he is, like he's painted in the book of Revelation, then you're just going to treat him like a buddy. But some people only see him out there and they do not see him in what he did down here on earth, the relatability of him. They feel like he's so far away. Colossians chapter one says that he is the Image of the invisible God. And then he says he's the firstborn of all creation. So this is striking at both of these. He is the image of God completely, and yet he is the greatest of all creation because he was a man, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And after coming down here, being raised to this heightened state, So many places we can go with this, but the book of Hebrews, what does it say about the life he lived on this earth and the importance of it? Titus, a little bit ago, you said, uh, you know, why didn't he come down as as a little baby and be offered as a sacrifice immediately? Well, where would his high priesthood be? Where would his understanding of human suffering be? Where would the relatability to us be? One of the great things about our God is that he came down here lived among us, was one of us, experienced all things exactly as we experienced them, and yet he was without sin. And so in his priestly position, we have somebody who is a man and he can relate to man in that way. And yet he's God. So he's in the presence of God, relating perfectly, articulating perfectly the struggles
0: of human beings. And the great thing is what about what you just said, once we start knocking down these dominoes of theological understanding, things just click. So so to understand the, the theology of the book of Hebrews, you have to understand the theology of priesthood, um, which is, again, not an, an easy topic. There, there's a lot to parse through in the law of Moses on priesthood and what that means. And yet it never becomes easier to understand, in my opinion, than once we see Jesus as the dual representative, the representative of man to God and the representative of God to man. It's in that light that the complexity of, of the institution suddenly becomes justified. Now we see this is what it was always all about. It was always a picture of this. And so, as you said, you know, th- this humanity component of Jesus, the reason it becomes so important is because of how he views us, how God... Views us and and again gets back into this problem that what do we say? God knows everything, God understands everything, Uh, nothing is hidden from God. And, And in that way, we want to say, Well, God can fully understand all of our experiences, He could from the beginning of time, but there must be something different about God becoming a human because we can say, I think, in theologically sound terms, you cannot hurt god you can't cut god's arm you can't you know make him uh you know b- break a bone you can't do that unless god becomes human and so god had not experienced those things until he became jesus until uh, again i'm i know that we're committing heresies in the way that we're talking about this when i say he became jesus once god puts on flesh then he opens himself up to these experiences and as you said those are absolutely vital for him to be our representative to God, yeah. which yeah. is important. God always throughout the Bible has a representative. He he sets Moses in place for the children of Israel to be their representative uh, on Mount Sinai when he says, I'm going to just blow the whole thing up. Moses is the intercessor. You have Abraham as the intercessor for Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, again, just pictures and shadows of the true priest, the true intercessor. And so again, that that becomes yeah. so important.
2: Well, and he's not... a that you know he's not just able to relate to us i mean his humanity allows him to understand completely and fully what we go through as human beings but he's not only relating to us a huge part of why he came down and did what he did was to show us the path that we are now to walk you know you sometimes hear people say jesus died so you don't have to and the truth is jesus died to show you how you must also die if God is out there in space and I can't see him and I have no idea how to attain to him on a practical level, well, he comes down and he's a man and he shows me practically every day how to eat, how to drink, where to go, what to do with my body. Now I have an example. You know, Hebrews does say that he was uh, uh, our, basically the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He is the pioneer. He's the trailblazer. He showed us the path that we are to walk. And it's a path of total devotion to God and also suffering in the midst of this present time, maintaining our faith just as he did. In uh, Romans chapter eight, he's talking about our adoption, um, you know, receiving this spirit spirit of adoption by which God brings us in and actually makes us his children. We become sons of God through through the spirit of Christ who comes within us. And Paul says this, he says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him? Why is it important that I suffer with him? That's the path Jesus trod. That's the way he went. That's what this world is going to bring upon you because of your faithfulness. And he showed us how to suffer. He showed us that path. So I don't really know how to be until God showed me how I ought to be well and exactly. you think
1: about the the Garden of Eden being shut off and just kind of that access that man had to God that we were supposed to have like that that's the picture of what what it was supposed to be and and you could kind of project out what would have happened over the years if Adam and Eve had stayed faithful and all that of, of how, what human life was supposed to be but you get back to that in Revelation the only way you get back to that is I mean because the Old Testament's really long, and it is just the biggest documentation of human failure and inability. You you know you have an Abraham that comes along, but he messes up. You've got a Moses that comes along and he sins, and you've got a, a David that comes along and and he sins, and like every time you've got you know this is our guy, this is our champion, this is no, yeah. I mean like it, it it is miserably depressing in the sense of that, and you look at the law, you know, and and everything it sets up, and we we kind of give the law an unfair reputation of of how hard it is and all that. Well, no, it, it did its purpose of drawing people near to God, cleansing people, forgiving them of their sins. But as Galatians says, it also is that tutor that leads us to Christ because it just highlights over and over and over your inability. I mean, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Every single day we violate that. And so the idea of getting back through the cherub, into the garden, right up to God, just not possible, and then you look at the tabernacle and the atonement and the blood and the high priests and, I mean, everything that, that had to happen for people to even come near to God, and then a certain amount got to go a little bit closer, and then one guy got to go right up to God one time. I mean, like, that that's depressing. When you, you look, at we started off with, we could walk with him in the garden. He was right there with us. We can't get back to that. In fact, we've we've got the structure where you can't even come near the mountain until you do certain things. And then you've got God saying, "I'll come down the mountain. I'll come out of the garden. I'll become one of you. I'll walk among you. I'll go through all of the garbage that you that sin has brought on you. These the, this curse that you've brought on yourself. I'll take it on, and I'll, I'll beat it for you. I I will defeat this for you um, by suffering, by dying, by by rising again, by everything that He did. It's mm-hmm. so powerful. And and again, you see that the Bible coming full circle: man with God at the tree of life forever and ever." It's incredible. It's such a beautiful story when you view it holistically that way. But the <laughs> the pillar, as as Titus said at the start, is the humanity of Jesus. Is him making that leap for us because we can't jump that canyon ourselves.
0: Exactly, and and that's why again, you you, you said it so beautifully there. Because what we're getting at when we ask, well, why does it matter that Jesus was a human, or 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 you know. When we ask that question, or what does it mean that Jesus was a human? The question we ultimately come about around to is, what does it mean that we're human? What does it mean to be a human? And you know, I my mind goes to Psalm eight, which is picked up in the book of Hebrews, which paints this picture of, you know, God, why in the world do you care about mankind when I behold you know the heavens and I look at your glory? Why do you care about man? And yet, you've crowned him with glory, you've you've made him for a little while lower than the angels, and yet you've put all things under his feet. And, and again, if we read the Bible well, we should see the vocation of man has always been dominion. We've always had this mandate from God, mm-hmm. this is what I want you to be. And I think it's so profound, one of my favorite passages, and again, I guess it's one that someone could accuse you of reading too much into, but after Pilate scourges and beats Jesus with an inch of his life, he brings him up before the crowd and says, behold, the man, behold, man, and What's amazing is it goes beyond just saying, behold, this guy, the one standing before us, he is what humanity was always supposed to be. Uh-huh. He's he's fulfilling what we were always supposed to do. And I think that works as a segue to talk about, you know, again, touching the hem of the garment here, why the dual nature of Jesus is so important. Because when we get into this question of, well, was Jesus really fully human, Because what ultimately comes to, at least in my generation, is did Jesus play the game of life with cheat codes? I mean, when Jesus came, was he, you know, working with, you know, he had this God knowledge, he had his God powers, uh, he was never really capable of sin. And and it becomes important, again, when you look at the way that people have formulated this over the last 2,000 years, it becomes apparent, no, Jesus must have been 100% fully human to have any sort of weakness, which the book of Hebrews says that he did, he had to be Mm -hmm. fully human. Uh, I've heard it compared to, and again, there's this thought out there of, you know, well, Jesus is kind of like you take the human, the human nature and you take the divine nature and you mix them together, kind of like putting a drop of ink in a bottle of water. The problem with that is if we take the human nature, it's like putting a drop of ink in the ocean, uh, the ocean of divinity. And so, you know, if we were to take Jesus' human nature and say, well, he was human, but he used these cheat codes, and so it wasn't really that hard for him to live a perfect life, suddenly we have to ask the question of, well, how valuable is that sacrifice, really? How valuable is a sacrifice if if Jesus was never even capable of being tempted, if he was never capable of experiencing weariness and hunger and, and sickness, these things uh, well, then did he really live the, the fully human life? And it becomes very important to say, yeah, he did. And he did it as a man and he did it flawlessly. He did it perfectly. Wow. And in th- it's within that understanding of the separation of the natures to say, you know, Jesus didn't have a get out of hell free card uh, simply because he was God in the flesh. Right. He still endured all the challenges that come with that reality.
2: Well, I think that,
0: Paul strikes at this point in
2: Romans 8, when just coming out of Romans 7, you know, he's talking about the struggle of being a man. I find it a lot that when I want to do something, uh, evil lies close at hand. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do. Who will deliver me from, Paul says, this body of death. I mean, he encapsulates the human flesh as a body of death. You know, the flesh is against the things of the spirit the law is spiritual. And when that came up against the flesh, it was like two, you know, magnets with their poles reversed and they just push against one another. Well, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's our answer. Well, how does this happen? Well, he says, because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus came in a manner just like us. I, you know, we would say this flesh is sinful. Something about it is broken. Now, again, it's mysterious. I don't fully understand it. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. It doesn't make any sense to me. But this is the way that flesh is. Jesus came somehow in some way in that likeness, which is his manhood. And yet he maintained also a complete divinity where he was able to override the pulling and the struggle of the sinful flesh and allow his God understanding to bring him to devotion and to through suffering, teach him obedience and to make him perfect through it. I think it's interesting the way that the Hebrew writer says he was made perfect, right? He's God, isn't is he already perfect? Yes, but because he was also a man, that had to be proven through this process.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And I, I think, you know, to to kind of explain as we talk about the, the nature that Jesus had, this human nature, and he had a divine nature. There's a few examples that kind of make this, I think, pretty simple. So one would be Jesus is one person with two natures. We wouldn't say, well, Jesus, the man, did this, but that action... um it has nothing to do with Jesus, the God, as if we're talking about two uh, Fred Sanders. He's a theologian. I love his term, Jesus. the mm-hmm. plural of Jesus is Jesus. So, you know, you have two, you have the man Jesus, you have the God Jesus, and they're kind of powwowing inside of Jesus's head going, well, man Jesus, should I do this? And God Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. We're going to do this instead. And it becomes a big problem. I think where it becomes most obvious about th- these natures and the separation comes to the question. So Jesus, we all agree, <laughs> died on the cross. Um, And there's a way in which we can say, Jesus, the son of God, God in the flesh died on the cross. But yet if we were to say, well, God died and God was dead for three days, as if implying the divinity of Jesus ceased to exist or ceased to be for three days. What would the universe look like if we were going to say, well, for three days, God, the son, the divine being died and the universe was just left with the father and the spirit at the wheel? So we quickly find out that doesn't work. He had to continue to be God. You know, he had to continue to exist as God even during that time. Another one directly after the resurrection, uh, when we talk about Matthew chapter twenty-eight, again one of the most important verses <laughs> to the mission of the church, the Great Commission. When Jesus says, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." As God, how in the world can Jesus be given any more authority than he already has? He's got infinite authority. He can't be given authority as God. So we know that he must be referring to in his human nature. As a man, he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And outside of that separation of understanding, we can't make sense of it. And we start attributing things and, and creating a God who can get better, a God who can become more powerful, a God that can become more knowledgeable. And as soon as we cross that bridge, suddenly we're into territory of, well, how great is this God anyway, if he can be getting better?
1: That that raises a really interesting discussion about the ascension, the the, the post-ascension Christ, right? I mean, they saw him raise up in bodily form into the sky, and I think we just kind of assume that like he then... Transdimensionally hopped into the the spiritual realm, and and that's where he'll be forevermore. Except he'll come back, maybe take on flesh again for a few minutes, and and be bodily, and then back into the spiritual dimension and all that. I think he still has a body. I, th- I like this is not this is this is part of it. And F- Philippians three uses the term the body of his glory. But that was mm-hmm. something he earned. Yeah, that there is this eternal body. And that First Corinthians fifteen we're gonna have bodies like him. And uh, it, it it's it's a very but another flesh, one of these concepts that's very hard to get your uh, you're gonna throw the objection out. I know. But... The
2: flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, Jack. Yeah. Don't you <laughs> don't you understand? <laughs> flesh is bad
1: flesh is bad and that that's you know we we had the gnosticism episode last time where we we really have that of you know jesus kind of throwing on the skin suit and like okay i'll go through this like this is he's redeeming the body here as well there's a reason he exactly because as titus is saying jesus didn't that side of jesus didn't die Uh, you know that the 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 deity of jesus didn't die that part didn't need to be resurrected the part that needed to be resurrected was the body that he took on why does it matter it be, there's a value to it, right? There's there's something very important. And so you used right. a, a phrase earlier, Titus, that's really important. All of this is he was, you know, teaching us, he was redefining what it means to be human, right? And that's where it's, it's talking about the new Adam, is this is our hope, is to get to be human in the way that he was human after his, and I mean, some really cool stuff happened after his resurrection, right? I mean, he's like teleporting and he's doing all... all uh, flying up in the air. I, I don't know what, what all is going to come with that, and I don't want to speculate mm-hmm. or make it weird, but uh, when we are raised again to mm-hmm. the body of his glory, a body, that's that's the promise that's made there in Philippians 3, right? Uh, you know that that's why Jesus becoming a human matter so much and, and what it projects for our own future, that we can't separate these things, and it's not just we'll be disembodied with wings floating, playing harps on the clouds forever and ever.
2: Right, and... Yep in um so roman i've been in romans forever so my mind is kind of always going here but jack you brought out a really important term which is jesus is redeeming the body jesus is buying back every single thing that was lost with adam when god made adam and he made paradise and he made the creation he made the physical world he made the body it says God looked at it and said, this is very good. There was nothing wrong with it. The design was perfect. It was, it perfectly represented the glory of God. Man represented the image of God. And this is how God made us to be. To be a human is to have a body. God didn't intend that that would just be taken from us. And to be a human in eternity means that there will be a body, but that had to be purchased. It had to be bought back. Romans chapter five Paul's point is, look, let's compare these two Adams. You got the first Adam and you got the second Adam, the man, Jesus, and everything that Adam broke, Jesus fixes. Adam brought sin. Jesus brought righteousness. Adam brought a curse. Jesus brought a gift. Adam brought death. Jesus brought life. If you go over into, uh, the book of Revelation, Jesus is sitting on his throne and he says, behold, I am making all things new. And this is right in the context of a new heavens and a new earth and looking forward to this future day where, yes, there is going to be some kind of body. In Romans 8, Paul brings out something that's huge. And, you know, the way I think of this is when Adam sinned, the, what was the first thing that died? Was it a spirit or is his, was it his body? Well, the first thing that died was the spirit. You know, in the day you eat of this, you're going to die. Well, once the spirit is dead, then the body dies sometime later. Paul makes the point. He says, this is why everybody dies, because everybody sins. You know, this, this leads to this. But if spiritual death brought physical death, then if God's going to fix this, then the thing he has to fix first is the spirit. And in Romans eight, Paul makes this amazing argument that the Holy Spirit gives life to your spirit right now. And if he has done that, it says he will give life to your mortal bodies in the same way that the spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Yes. He's looking forward. So he's, and Paul makes the same point over first Corinthians 15. He says, look, Jesus Christ is the first fruits, the resurrection, of the body, from the grave, being brought up to glory, that's going to, uh, that's the first fruits, meaning the later fruits are going to look just like it. And I know you get some pushback. This is even, you know, we talked last week about, you know, some of the areas where we draw lines of fellowship. You know, we're talking about creedal, um, supposed creeds. This is one of those that some people in the brotherhood are going to say, look, you're out if you believe in, you know, a future body. Um, you're, you're out. If you think that the body has anything, um, in paradise, but Jesus did, Jesus was raised up with a body. His body was glorified and Paul says he was the first fruits. And the thing that I often ask people is, okay, do you believe in the resurrection? Yes. Why? Well, because Jesus was resurrected. He says the same thing's going to happen to us. So God raised Jesus' body. His body went up into heaven. He's going to do the same thing with you, and yet somehow we jump from God's going to raise the body, and then wherever we go, he's just going to obliterate the body, and then it's going to have nothing to do with what goes on afterwards. How does that make any sense? (laughs) If Jesus is coming to, to raise us from the dead, he's going to take our body in the grave and raise it up and then bring us somewhere where that body means nothing? It just doesn't make sense. So Jesus is paving this road for us, and uh, we just got to trust in that path that he left for us.
0: And everything you guys are saying, thats and I think maybe, I don't know about you guys, but as you study the Bible and in recent years, when some of this stuff really comes to the surface, because it comes to the surface when you study the, the text and take it seriously, you um, some light bulbs start going off. Some some natural things start happening. And, and one of those things again goes back to um I, I remember as I was learning some of this about the resurrection, really digging, you know, when Jesus goes to Bethany after Lazarus dies and he says, You know, don't worry, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, uh, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus kind of looks at her and says, Do you think that's just gonna happen by itself? Like, do you think that's just naturally where we're headed? I am the resurrection. I'm the one who will facilitate that future resurrection that will happen. You're right. I'm the one driving the car. And so once you understand that our resurrection and Jesus's resurrection are are inexplicably tied, all these other little nuggets start to make sense. One of which we haven't really mentioned yet that I think for some people is kind of this mind-blowing. They do a double-take and say, what? Jesus is eternally, from the point that he took on flesh, a man. Um, you know, when Paul in First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, for there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Where was Jesus when Paul wrote that? He was sitting on the throne of heaven. He says he is a man even now. Again, he's glorified man, he's God and man, and yet that humanity hasn't been resorbed. And, and I think when we Jack mentioned this this thought in the Brotherhood that I've heard of kind of Jesus jettisoning his body like a space shuttle as he transdimensionally ascended into heaven. What you think is, well Jesus was God. there was a point in time where he became a man and there was a point in time where he stopped being a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's simply yeah. unbiblical. The biblical text goes in the complete opposite direction. Um, right. And and to me, the most comforting part of it, and maybe the most helpful practical part for the way that people understand this is so often we, we talk a lot in the church about physical versus spiritual, uh, which I think from the get-go kind of Tells people's perceptions in a certain way. I think worldly or fleshly versus spiritual is a much more helpful distinction. But what excites me is if there's a person out there that thinks, well, God cares about the spiritual things. And what that means is everything I can see and touch does not matter. It's all some ghostly, shadowy, um, you know, abstract, existence beyond any kind of understanding or any kind of uh, uh, you know ex- lived experience I have, it's hard to get excited about that. It's hard to get excited and say, well, everything here is trash. Everything I've experienced is trash. And what God's going to do is going to totally jettison any frame of reference I have out the window to do something completely new. Instead, when it becomes Jesus lived in a body of flesh mm-hmm. and died in a body of flesh, and was raised in a spiritual body, and then we said, "Well, what is a spiritual body? Is it a ghost? Absolutely not. Feel my feel my arms. You know, does does a ghost have this skin? Does a ghost have a body? Mm-hmm. Um, when it looks like eating with friends on the seashore, when it looks like again someone that you can hug and touch and feel, and then as, as you reference Jack and Philippians, you know that our body will be transformed to match His glorious body. Well, then suddenly. The spiritual takes on a whole new dimension, and it's not ghostly. It's not incorporeal, right? That For whatever you want to say, uh, eternity will be corporeal because we will have bodies. We will be embodied. And as Daniel said, um, if you don't have that peace, if the resurrection peace is missing— And that's, again, why I think so many people misread 1 Corinthians 15, as if the Corinthian church, their problem was, we don't believe Jesus really rose from the dead. Read the context. That's not the issue. They believe Jesus rose from the dead. What they had a hard time with was believing that anybody else was going to rise from the dead. That's why Paul goes and says, you know, I hear that you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Don't you realize if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What's he right. saying? He's right. saying that you you have this mental disconnect that you somehow believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and yet that doesn't carry over to humanity as a whole. And again, I'm not trying to cast uh, any kind of um, you know shame on people that haven't learned this, because again, depending on who you are, some of the things we're saying may be very new. They may be very I've never heard that before. I've never Mm -hmm. considered that before. And and I don't want to shame those people. But I I think that if you miss some of this stuff, Mm -hmm. um, you're missing a, a huge part of what Christianity is and who Jesus is. Right. You mentioned being excited about
2: what's to come. I remember a number of years ago and I'm just going to use the words that they used, if that's okay. I was walking, this is while I was at, um, while I was studying at Oklahoma Christian and, and um, these girls were walking in front of me and they said, um, so uh, we learned, and they weren't talking to me, but they were talking amongst themselves. They said, so we learned today that the only thing we're going to do for all eternity is be a spirit that sits in a circle singing. And they kind of looked at each other and, and i am I'll just, one of the girls said that's going to suck and, <laughs> <laughs> and so i i'm i'm of the impression that whatever it's going to be is going to be amazing even if it's different than what i'm expecting it's going to be amazing i can trust that and i think that it's possible to to think that's what it's going to be and to be excited only on the promise that it's going to be good but that's not the picture that the bible paints The Bible does picture, the Bible does paint a picture that we can get excited about and it follows what Jesus did. Again, Jesus coming down to correct everything that went wrong. We somehow have a memory within us, though we were not in the garden, we somehow have a memory of what was supposed to be. This is why everybody, when they look at death, they say it shouldn't be this way. When they look at cursed ground and thorns and thistles, they say, it shouldn't be this way. Well, where are you getting that frame of reference? Because somehow that still is maintained within the human person. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Jesus came and he corrected it and he's correcting it for everything. Jesus coming in the body is correcting everything that was broken in the body, including this physical world. Paul in uh, Romans 8 again, you know, he's talking about this present creation and he says that uh the creation itself and this stands in contrast to human beings because he makes the point he says not only the creation but we ourselves so we're not talking about the same thing we're talking about everything created he says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god which goes back to the previous verse where he says you know um, there's going to be a glory that will be revealed to us. He's talking about our, our resurrection. But he says the creation itself is waiting for the resurrection. Why? Because the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. When God cursed the world and you know made childbirth painful and put thorns in the ground and made the sun a lot hotter than it was supposed to be, he did that in hope. What kind of what does that mean? It means there was something positive that it was looking forward to. It says in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he's saying everything that broke, Jesus is fixing it. And it's interesting to me that he bookends this discussion on the creation with talking about the resurrection of Jesus. That's what is bringing this about Jesus becoming a man allowed him to fix all of this and his resurrection stands on both ends of that
1: i think all of this and i mentioned this earlier is man we get jesus died for you right we understand that you know your baptism and washing the blood and all of that a lot of this what we're talking about of that it's not going to be some floating playing harp singing in a circle forever is what jesus rose for you means and and that that has current implications of what it means to live now under the, the life that jesus has given us but also what eternity is going to be and so uh, we also need that jesus lived for you which we've talked a little bit about and when you understand all three of those it puts everything into contrast perfectly if he lived for you he died for you he rose again for you and we over spiritualize heaven and so we don't get the he rose for you we over spiritualize life on earth so we don't get the he lived for you and we, we had an episode on pietism in the first season of how many Christians just go, oh, Jesus doesn't care about that. Jesus doesn't care about this world and those things. And man, the economy is really tough right now. I mean, there is a lot of financial stress on a lot of people. And there's kind of this mindset. Maybe nobody will come straight out and say, but well, Jesus doesn't care about that. You're going to go to heaven. It's all going to be fixed when you die anyway. And, you know, the the, the pains of this world, the, the sadness that comes on us in this world, all those things that... Yeah, Jesus lived for you means he understands that. He's been there. He's He's right. had financial strain. He's tempted in all things. We brought up that verse earlier. He understands the temptations pulling at you. He understands stress. I mean, the I think the greatest encapsulation of this whole discussion we've, we're having, which we haven't brought up yet, is in the garden praying, please let this cup pass from me, not my will, but yours be done. Human side saying, I really don't want to do this. The submissive, you know, the 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 part that is marrying it perfectly, the God and human is saying, "Not my will, but yours be done," and so he lived for us. He's been there. He's he's known what it means to do the hard thing. He's known all of the challenges that are thrown at us. And man, when we over spiritualize it, when I hear Christians right. talk that way, it makes me so mad. It right. it trivializes what Jesus did for us, but it also trivializes this life and and the importance, you know, of you know, it's all going to burn someday. We we can, I mean, like we've, we've kind of touched on that a little bit, but, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, this life matters. And, and Jesus coming here shows that it matters. It, it the, the fact that he felt it necessary that the whole system was set up as such that he would come here and become part of this shows how much this matters to him to redeem it, to save it, to not just trash it all. He could, I mean, he flooded it right. once. Even before coming, he could have said, they're not worth it. I'll just i'll just burn them all up that's you know romans 5 that while we were yet sinners and, and john 3 16 i mean so many foundational verses depend on us understanding what it means that jesus took on flesh and i don't think we deeply understand we might be wildly familiar with john 3 16 and romans 5 8 but if mm. you don't understand what it means that jesus became a human they don't have the punch that they should and so right. as we're kind of running up against our time here i think that's one of the things titus had on the outline which i'm really glad you did is this should help us in our, our gratitude, our reverence, our awe, our, our feeling of love. Like, you know, we brought up Psalm 8 earlier. Like, why am I worth this? Why would Jesus come and get so much as a hangnail for me, much less being beaten and, and killed for me? Uh, you know, why, why experience hunger? Why experience temptation? Why experience any of this to save me? Right. Because of his love, because of uh, how, how wonderful he is. It, it's really powerful.
2: Right. As as we're drawn to a close, I want to hit, I want to strike on that point one more time about, you know, and I Titus, I don't think this is, was going to be on either one of our minds to uh, initially have a discussion on Jesus' dual nature, but I'm really glad that we did because Christians do need this encouragement. And Jack, you bring out the point about Jesus living for us and he's able to live for us because he Came down here and he experienced it in Romans five. You brought up Romans five eight, but just after it, Romans five ten. He says, "You know, if we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, how much more will we be saved by His life? Because what's He doing? He is right now still a man living for you, and He makes the case over in Romans." Uh, eight that what he's doing as the man at the right hand of God is he is interceding for you. His life, he didn't go to heaven to retire and to sit down and be done. He went there to re- represent man, to represent yes, yes. the blood bought men who belong to God. And you you want to know how intimately he's connected with us in our sufferings right now. This is one of the most amazing uh, studies I've ever done. In Romans 8, verse 22, he says the whole creation is groaning. In verse uh, 23, he says not only the creation, but we ourselves are groaning. And then in verse 26, he says that the spirit is interceding with groanings too deep for words. Because the spirit of Christ is in us, experiencing everything that we're experiencing and groaning along with us, um, and Jesus is therefore
0: able to represent us perfectly before God. Amen. That's exactly right. Well, you know, as we're as we're coming to a close here, I just want to say once you understand these things. And by the way, Daniel, you just signed up to uh, to head up an episode on eschatology for us since we've now cracked <laughs> the cracked the can open on that one. Um, <laughs> but but I just want to say. Um, Once you get in these discussions, it's amazing, in my mind, kind of how this episode has grown and bloomed out, because what we've demonstrated here is something that someone could claim, man, what an abstract idea in theology, the duality of Jesus's nature. It becomes so pivotal for so many discussions. It, it really makes the whole theology bloom out, and it starts touching every aspect of our lives, who we are, God's new creation, in Jesus. and Jesus. And it reminds me of a statement that Paul makes in First Corinthians fifteen. Because as we start talking about this, as we talk about the humanity of Jesus, the reason it's important that he came and redeemed the world, the reason why he died for visible, tangible things that are important, the first you know statement that gets thrown out is kind of, well, you're just focusing too much on worldly things. You need to be of a spiritual mindset. But what's amazing is our desire for these things that, that God has done in Jesus, that he's done in the man, Jesus Christ, it opens us up to be willing to literally die in this life, to lose this current body for what. Ever God is going to do for us next that's better. I think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if this life is it, then why did we wrestle beasts in Ephesus? Why were we continually having the pall of death over us? We're willing to do it because we know that what God has done in Jesus, He's going to do for every single one of us. And I just think, you know, to close, as Paul was instructing Timothy about, you know, here's how I want things to run in the house of God. Here's how I want things to be. He adds in First Timothy 3.16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And if you as a Christian can get to the point where you truly believe that, you have just become a dangerous person. You are a person that is willing to do whatever it takes for the kingdom, because by any means possible, you want to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And it's only through the light of Jesus and who he is, what he became for us and who he continues to be, that we truly see that for what it is. And as we started saying that, that illuminating light, it's in that that we see the
1: nature of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son revealed to us as we can understand it. Well mm-hmm. said, well said. That's a good place for us to stop. Uh, again, thanks to Titus for driving this one. We'll be back with another one next week on Who Let the Dogma Out. As always, as we said this some last season, leave us a review. Uh, if it, One of the best things you can do for us is on Facebook. If you follow the page, we post quote images you know, or, or the links to the show. If you enjoy it, if you think people can learn from it, just share one of those. Just share one thing that you think is a, a useful quote. That goes a long way, gets people uh, interested, introduces people to the show. Uh, it would help us out a lot. And that's so what I'm going to ask that you might uh, go check that out, uh, Who the Dogma out on Facebook, and we'll be back next week. Talk to you later.